So, this one. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, let's see, where to start? Uh, as I mentioned before, there, kind of, there was a big push to kind of start introducing larger name actors, and this will be a thing henceforth, basically. Uh, Mel Gibson is the obvious one. Do you know Christian Bale's in this? I mean, obviously it's a little earlier on in his career. He plays Thomas, the idiot. Uh, I mean, the well-meaning idiot. Although I have to give special praise to Irene... I'm going to go with Bedard. Irene Bedard. I'm probably saying that wrong, and I apologize. She's the one who plays Pocahontas. And she does a good job with the role, actually. Which is pretty impressive, considering this is her second film ever. And she would go on to do quite a few stuff after this, so this was kind of a career starter for her. Let's, uh... Let's start with the obvious stuff. No, I didn't care for this film all that much. This is the first one of these films so far that I've just been like, eh. And that's funny, because if you ask me my opinion going back, I have no particularly strong memories of this film. And I think that helps to exemplify it. Each of the previous films, all the way back to Little Mermaid, has had little touches, details, elements of polish, good things that they did. You could really feel and feel the passion of the people creating it. You know, the color coordination of Beast and the, and the con concurrent, uh, excuse me, Beauty and the Beast and the concurrent uh, story arcs. Or the nature of how uh, Aladdin decided to utilize its um, geometric approach to character design. Or how Lion King actually spent a huge amount of effort to make sure that they looked as realistic as possible. Just all this details and work and stuff, all this little stuff, I have nothing to say about that for this film. I actually went digging just in case there was something I didn't see in, like, an interview or analysis or whatever. Nope. It's just an animated film. And that's the problem. It's not bad. Really, it isn't. It's just unmemorable, with a couple of notable exceptions. And that kind of fits. So, here's the thing. If you watched my previous video on The Lion King, you'll remember I mentioned extensively about how much... Uh, a time, attention, effort, resources, and people were directed towards this film in, in the expense of Lion King. Lion King turned out amazing. This film turned out bland. Why? Well, I did a little looking into this. As I already mentioned, uh, Katzenberg was really pushing for this one to be the next big serious film. He was going for another uh, Academy uh, nod, an Academy Award-winning uh, nomination. And so they made sure to uh, make sure that Pocahontas was older, because originally she was supposed to be 12, uh, improve the romance, I'll come back to that point later, uh, remove the talking animals, that'll be relevant in a minute. They also wanted to make sure it was more prestigious and more successful than Lion King. And so most of everyone, I already kind of mentioned this, most of everyone was like, yes, we'll throw everything into this. Here's the problem. Uh, this film had actually... You remember how I talked about the production issues of Lion King? This film actually, believe it or not, had even worse production issues. They were rewriting the script so frequently that the main character, uh, Irene, who plays Pocahontas, she had to record dialogue for so much time, because they would bring her in, because remember, the pattern is you record the dialogue, then you animate based on dialogue. But the problem is they kept changing the script. So she'd come in to record, and then she'd come in to record because they changed the lines. And then she'd come in to record because they changed the lines. And this just kept happening and happening over and over and over. 
And you could see how this film kind of started to fall apart from a development perspective because this was happening everywhere. They just couldn't decide what the hell they wanted to do with this thing. Probably the biggest example, the best example I could give you is of exactly how much this film had troubled production is there was a character called Red Feather who was supposed to be a turkey. Now, this character had lots of lines of dialogue because in the original, well, I shouldn't say in the original script, in one of the 50 original iterations of the script, there, the animals actually talked and had dialogue, and there were more of them. So they had actually brought in John Candy, who had recorded all of his lines for Red Feather. This is actually before he died, obviously. In fact, basically just before he died. But when they went ahead and torpedoed all the animals talking, all that dialogue was removed. I want you to picture that for a second. If I'm not making my point clear, they had an entire character who had all his dialogue written out and recorded... And they had already started the animation for this character before they changed their mind and rewrote the script to eject the character from continuity entirely. Actually, that's not the first thing that happened. The first thing that happened is they made them not talk. Then they started getting rid of some of the characters because they just don't, didn't know what to do with them. And then the turkey was turned into a raccoon. I'm not joking. Uh, Miko, I think it is. I wrote it down somewhere. It, whatever. The, the, the raccoon is what came of the Red Feather character. They also originally wanted to have Pocahontas' mother there, but for historical accuracy reasons, I'll get to that in just a second, uh, they were like, no, she probably wouldn't actually know her mother. So like, okay, fine, so she doesn't know her mother, but we'll have her mother be this one particular star in the sky that she can reach out to. Oh, wait, Lion King's doing that. We can't do that. Okay, she'll be a tree. No, the tree was actually supposed to be a dad. <laughs> like I said, they couldn't make up their minds. Now, I'm going to go ahead and say something, because you might look at this and extrapolate a lot of inferences, especially when you directly compare this film to Lion King. And you might say, well, obviously Lion King did better because they were more limited. Eh, I don't actually agree with that. Lion King did better because it was better managed. See, here's the thing. You could argue that having too much freedom and resources is a bad thing, and that's a valid argument. You could argue that having too few freedom and resources is a bad thing, and that's an easy, easy argument to make. So you could argue that there's a sweet spot in between there, that's where the really good stuff is made, and that's a valid argument to make. But in my opinion, all of those bypass the real point, that a proper management is what is necessary to really make a good work. Lion King and I, I kind of talked about this during that rumination. Lion King had their, their staff locked down. You do this, you do this, you do this, you do this. We'll coordinate here. Let's work on this. Bam, bam, go. And the film was made. This film, uh, go do whatever. I'm going to work on this other thing. Oh, wait, you want to do that? No, we can't do that because of this. Wait, you want us to do that? And then another guy shows up and says, hey, why don't we do this? Oh, that's a good idea. Another person shows up, why don't we do this? <laughs> it's like the value of having a good showrunner or mainliner when it comes to a, a consistent series of works. It probably doesn't help that, as I've alluded to a few times, this is when Katzenberg was on his way out. And so he usually would be the mainliner for a situation like this. And he had been for several previous films. Uh, but now, well... He was getting, 
Whether he was fired or left of his own volition is a matter for debate. And as I think I've mentioned before, there's actually a lot of politics involved in him leaving and why he left and why people weren't happy to see him go and why people were happy to see him go. He took several animators with him, too, when he went to DreamWorks, funnily enough. So that was fun. But either way, because he was already like two steps out the door, Lion King was was concluded, you know, basically under his tenure. But this one, he left before this one actually finished coming out. So you can kind of see how the lack of management thing comes into play. Let me put this another way. You remember the hyenas back in Lion King? Well, they were pathetic, right? I mean, the lions beat them easily. You know why? Because they weren't properly managed. No, seriously, think about it. The hyenas weren't as strong or as agile or as skilled as the lions, but they had far superior numbers. So if they had good leadership, that leadership could direct them properly to easily overcome the lions. But they had no leadership, so they were effortlessly routed by a much weaker force. That is the value of good management right there. Anywho, <clears throat> I suppose I should go ahead and talk about two other problems this film ran into. One is Batman, and one is history. I'm not kidding. I'll talk about the Batman one first, because it's the funniest to me. See, Batman Forever came out the same week that this film did. It came out very, very close. Like, if it wasn't the same week, it was. I know it was the same month. Uh, it was very, very close to the release of Pocahontas. Now, you might be thinking, who cares? Well, the problem is, some of you probably don't remember. It was actually Batman Forever, specifically. And I know you're thinking, oh, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a really great film right there. And yeah, fair enough. But the problem is, nobody knew that at the time, did they? <laughs> remember, Tim Burton's Batman and Batman Returns both were financial juggernauts in the film industry. And, and they just kind of completely renovated, arguably, the superhero genre as a concept. So when Batman Forever came out, lots of people were lining up to see that one. And that directly ate into any potential ticket sales for this one, because not only would less people go to see this, because they'd see Batman Forever instead, but it also meant that there was a lot more marketing buzz going around Batman Forever. Since, obviously, the studios can do their own marketing stint, but each theater they choose how to market what, where, and they were spending more time and attention on Batman Forever than they were on Pocahontas. So that's the first big hamper across the knees there. Or I guess more like the 15th at this point if you're paying attention. The second is the historical accuracy problem. Now, they actually brought in uh, several consultants, including uh, actual you know, members of the, I don't know how to pronounce it, so I'm not going to try, tribe, which was being represented here. Powhatan, I think? Anyways, they brought in actual members of the tribe to talk about this, and then they took their advice and threw it out the window. <laughs> Which is funny, because they actually did take some effort to retain a level of historical accuracy. They really did. I know that sounds silly to say that. But for the most part, they took it as a very loose guideline in order to craft the story they did. And I remind you, massive script issues because of lack of good management. So, based on what we know, several of the original versions of the script were actually a lot more accurate, and probably because of the fact that they brought in the consultants in order to actually figure it out. And then, and then we get this film. Tom Cito actually has gone on record, he was one of the big guys uh, who was directly in charge of the historical side of things, who was trying to keep this all straight, and he has come under fire many times for how much this film is incredibly inaccurate. 
And he has stated very, very many times his defense of several of those inaccuracies. And this is going to sound really weird, but I'm actually in favor of some of those inaccuracies myself. Some of them. See, here's the thing. There are certain things they just can't do, right? Pocahontas can't walk around without a top on. Duh. That's, 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 I'm, I'm, I hate to tell you guys this, but a Disney film can't do that. Um, they also didn't really want her to be 12 years old, since this was supposed to be a romance story. Again, I don't really feel like I need to explain this. The inclusion of John Smith instead of, I can't remember his name, the guy who was actually there, uh, that's a little bit more questionable. The changes to the actual tribe and tribal behavior, eh, that's where you start to lose me. And, of course, they had to include magic. There's actually a decent amount of magic in this film, in total contrast to Lion King, which, if you remember, had almost none. Whereas this one has literally magic translation. I... <laughs> sure. Right. Uh-huh. Anyways. <clears throat> but I do have to mention something here. Because, on the one... I, I just want to give both sides of this point, because I think I can kind of see both sides of it. On the one hand... The historical inaccuracies are irritating because this is an actual historical event and taking from, um, you know, other cultures in order to try and basically parody it. And I could see why people would be upset about that. Imagine if they did, for example, this is just a made-up thing, imagine if they did uh, Joan of Arc, right? That's an actual historical account. Now, there's a lot of who knows about that because that's how history works. But imagine if they did a Disney film about Joan of Arc and substantially changed it in multiple ways. In fact, I could actually say this very simply for any of you familiar with history. Imagine if they did a Joan of Arc film and added in a romance of any kind at all with with her, her herself. So you can see why that would piss people off. I, I, I get that, right? Because, you know, what? Here's the other side of that. This is a Disney film. I mean, I hate to say that so bluntly, but Disney's films have always taken the the frameworks of other story ideas and really, really loosely adapted them. That's been true since forever. You know, that's that's nothing new. And so, I, I know that sounds horrible, but if you walk into a Disney film expecting something that is a straight-cut take on the particular tale, historical or fictional, that is trying to tell, you're in the wrong theater. So I can kind of see both sides of this one here. I would probably be more willing to defend the film if it wasn't so damn boring. You notice I haven't started talking about it yet. It's because I have the least notes by far of this one. Most of my notes are actually... In fact, a full half of my first page of notes are just about the behind-the-scenes stuff I've been talking to you about. Which, before I forget... Yes, we, we, we skipped over it because Lion King, you know, we didn't have anything Lion King. But Patrick Stewart was supposed to be in Pocahontas. <laughs> It's, it's, it's four out of five. Uh, he was supposed to play Ratcliffe, for anybody curious. Although they then passed over him to go to, I can't remember his name, but the gentleman who actually played Gaston over in Beauty and the Beast. And they actually did some work with him, because of course they did, before they decided to fire him because he just sounded too much like Gaston and they didn't want that. And then instead they got David Ogden Steers, I think is his name, who is the guy I mentioned from Half a Life over in TNG, who also plays Wiggins, his attendant. Anyways, so film starts. The premise is interesting because it starts off with the premise. Uh, it starts off with a song, first of all. This is starting to become normal. And this, uh, the song gets across the very bare-bones idea. Colonists. Okay, sure. 
Quick aside, I know that talking about colonialism in general is probably one of the biggest hot-button topics of the last 200 years, but um, I just want to make a point really quickly clear here. There's two types of colonialism. There's going to an empty place and colonizing it, and then there's going to a inhabited place and colonizing it. Now, I point that out. I just make that point very quickly here. Because the film can't seem to decide which direction they're going with this. Sometimes they seem to be just settlers, you know, the, the former type, where it's, hey, new land, it'll be awesome. And, and then other times they're like, and we'll, we'll, we'll take over you and we'll show you how things work and blah, blah, blah. It's like, that's the second half. Anyways, we see right off the bat that uh, Smith is a heroic figure. Oh, I am heroic. I will do anything I have to do to save people. And he's you know, rough and tough, and he does something incredibly stupid. In the middle of a storm, he jumps overboard to save a, an overboard man. Now, granted, he has a rope tied to him, or at least a rope attached to him, but still, that is actually kind of crazy what he pulls there. This is then put in immediate contrast to Ratcliffe, who is, he has a puppy, a nice outfit, an umbrella. Uh, and see, here's the thing. The, the, the best contrast between the two is Smith, when he saw a man was overboard, immediately jumped in to save him. Ratcliffe gives an empty speech. We can see right off the bat the contrast between the two. Although, if we're being honest, it's actually more a contrast between everyone on the ship and Ratcliffe. This is another fairly Disney thing. They try to hoist pretty much all of the blame for the colonists and settlers onto one individual, making it all about Ratcliffe and him being the villain, rather than any compl complicity or complicit behavior with regards to the others. Because all of them were taking action. You'll notice even as Smith was diving overboard, they caught the rope to help haul him back. Whereas Ratcliffe gives words. Also, fun fact, it actually, uh, Ratcliffe is basically an invented character. Just just pointed that out. Then the reason they went with it is because they liked the name better. <laughs> just, just going to that historical accuracy thing again. Anyways, <clears throat> this is, of course, he then immediately follows this by thinking of all those brave, heroic men who just saved a man's life as nothing more than tools. Tools to get him gold, right? Okay, greed, that's understandable. Well, I'll come back to that. So then... Shift, title, crawl, plays, and we switch over to the Indian side of things, the American Indian side of things. Now, the first thing we see is animals and slapstick. <sighs> now, we, we then see a female lead, who is the daughter of, the, of a male leader of a tribe, who is not impressed by the eligible male, and her father's trying to both contain her and push her. And it's the Disney princess thing. Let's just move on. I have very little to say about a lot of this. She has an entire song, which is just kind of, okay. And the, the metaphor is strange, because usually, okay, this is going to sound weird. One of the things I appreciate when it comes to any work like this, which is aimed at younger audiences, is when they present something in a complex way. You know, in other words, like that bear over there, we can tell that he is a complex threat rather than a simplistic threat, right? I'm sorry, I just got distracted by that. The point is, I like it when the films don't treat us as if we're morons, even if we're kids, okay? Simplicity. The problem is, the main theme of this film, well, I should say the second main theme of this film, is an extremely simplistic one. Now, in hindsight, this makes sense, because 
they didn't have the time and effort and work to actually polish this thing to make it something good. Instead, they just kind of went with the vague idea of, do you do the safe and careful thing, or do you do the wild and free thing? And they portray wild and free as good, but not why. No effort is put into trying to show the consequences or the dangers or the rewards or anything. It's a very simple theme, right? Do you want to be safe and secure, or do you want to be free and hurt, but also joyful? It's a very common theme. The film doesn't do anything with it. In fact, this initial song is one of the only times they even touch on this. <sighs> so, we go to meet Mother, Grandmother Willow, um, who is portrayed by Linda Hunt, who, in addition to being kind of awesome, I, I couldn't help but just being weirded out this whole time, because I've played God of War. Anyways, <clears throat> so she shows up, and the wind shows up, which is her mother. No, I'm dead serious. Every time the wind shows up with, like, the wind and the petals and the, like, little bits of tree, that's her mother. Again, straight-up magic. <laughs> Very historically accurate. Uh, let's see. This is when we talk about Ratcliffe. God, I'm, I'm already almost two-thirds of the way through my notes here. Ratcliffe, like, I have some notes here where it's like, you know, maybe this is a thing? Nope. Like, the, the, the film tries to show... Uh, Percy and Miko in contrast to each other. But the problem is what happens in Percy and Miko are basically exactly the same and both cause troubles for each other, but then they make up for no reason. Now, I get the point. This is tied to the main theme of the film, which is, you know, cooperation between people who are different. You know, the handshake is probably one of the better scenes in the film, I would say, when uh, when he teaches her what a handshake is and how they say hello, and then she teaches him how they say hello, which I wrote that down. Uh, Wingapo. You know, the Wingapo versus the handshake. That was a good scene. It's probably one of the really good scenes, in the few really good scenes in the film. That theme, okay, sure. But the problem is, as with the aforementioned problem, they don't do anything with Miko and Percy to earn it. It's just all of a the sudden they start being friends because that's the theme of the film. Sure. Anyways. <clears throat> Ratcliffe. So he's pathetic. I'm going to go ahead and say something kind of strange. Remember how I mentioned how the villains started getting more characterization as of late? Especially as of Aladdin and Lion King? Ratcliffe actually does get a decent amount of characterization, but relatively little screen time, and he's not threatening. In fact, he is actually pathetic. It's part of his character that he's pathetic. But my point is... This film basically doesn't have a villain. And I know that's a weird thing to point out because I myself am someone who's very against the threat of the weak concept. But I feel like the weakness of Ratcliffe as a character is part of why this film doesn't really pop for me personally. Because his entire arc is that he is petty, small-minded, and pathetic. I'm not even being insulting there. That's just a statement of fact. He is someone who was ridiculed at court because he was pathetic and stupid and couldn't think more than five feet in front of his face. And so he's decided the only way to make things up in order to, to restore his position and to be able to show those idiots back in, in London <laughs> is to come to the New World and blindly dig for gold literally everywhere. I don't even know where to start to talk about how stupid that is. Now, that's part of the point. It's, it, it's not like it's bad writing. It's just that he is very stupid. That's his point. But 
I mean, he, he comes to the New World. One of the, one of the other points, this is like the third point at this point, the third theme here, is that everyone here, except for Ratcliffe, sees this new terrain as, oh my God, this is beautiful and gorgeous, and it's this wonderful new world, and there's all these amazing new things, and Ratcliffe is like, there's gold there. Now, obviously, this is then doubly ironic, because there is no gold there, but I'll get to that in a minute. But it's also important to note, he, it's, it's so small of him. It's not like he is some, uh, some, some embodiment of avarice. He literally just wants this gold to give to his boss so his boss brings him back into his good favor. This is literally the middle manager at an office place, you know, an office workplace, who has decided to go ahead and try and torpedo an entire product line because he thinks it might succeed, and if so, he'll get brownie points from his boss. Not an actual promotion, mind you, just brownie points. That is the level of pathetic that Ratcliffe is. That's actually all I really have to say about him. Looking at my notes. Um, okay, let's... I, I do have to admit, the bit that uh, John Smith said to Miko actually amused me. It's a biscuit. It's food, or... It's sort of... <laughs> Try eating it for four months and tell me how you like it. Yeah, yeah. Mm, hard tack. <clears throat> Anyways, the, um, the, the, so this is when uh, John Smith and Pocahontas meet each other. Why doesn't, po why doesn't John Smith shoot Pocahontas? I'm actually quite curious of your answer to that, if you feel like giving it to me. Because this is when I mention something else. And I, I, funnily enough, I'm apparently not the only one who has had this exact problem with the film. The romance sucks. I, I, I just is, is, in fact, I would actually say if the romance was completely ejected from the film entirely, it would actually make the film better. John Smith and Pocahontas serve as a decent parallel of the two cultures trying to get along with each other. They do. They're, like I said, the handshake scene, the Wingapo scene. That was actually good. And there are several scenes where the two, you know, in their coordination interaction with each other, actually it's pretty decent. So I'm kind of with that. But the romance angle is almost not even there. In fact, when I was re-watching it this time around, I started to think, was there a romance? Am I misremembering? No, there has to be. There's some kind of romance there. But they keep utterly de-emphasizing it right up until the big kiss scene, which I'll cover later. In point, in fact, the romance, it's, I mean, I know, I know, this is me saying this, and that just destroys my credibility, but my point being, I really feel like the romance was a misstep. This is funny, because if you paid attention to me earlier, I mentioned how Katzenberg was really pushing for a better, more mature romance. Right. <sighs> Anyways. So, um... They have the magic translation. Oh, sorry, I didn't answer my own question. Why doesn't he shoot her? See, the thing is, the film portrays this, and this is awful, that he doesn't shoot her because she's pretty. Right. <laughs> However, I have to admit, even though that was probably the intent, I don't agree. To me, it seems clearly that he doesn't shoot her because she's not threatening. She's not some ignorant savage. She's just a person standing there. So he's like, oh, okay. The, the scene is framed in such a way. Because, think about it this way. If she had been like, <gasps> and then started to charge to attack him, he probably would have shot her, regardless of how pretty she is. But, but, 
She stands there unafraid and peaceful, and so he puts his gun down. Anywho, <clears throat> look at my notes here. <laughs> I, like, I have a note here on the side. Of course there's no gold, because they're idiots. <laughs> Uh, so the magic translation happens, and it's just straight-up magic. I want to give you a weird allegory here. I want you to imagine for a moment. This this is so... <sighs> I want you to imagine that... This is probably a bad example. Uh, British settlers suddenly landed on the shores of France. And we're like, ah, oh, yes, this untamed land. And they go and find a section of land nearby a French village and just decide to settle there. Now, I know that historically things like this did actually happen off and on between them, but I want you to imagine this is an official chartered thing, the Virginia Company, right? Someone that has an actual document that is signed by the, by the nobility and by the king, giving them royal decree of this thing, and they're going to settle France. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, hang on a second. That, that would lead to war, wouldn't it? Yeah! In fact, that would be very, very stupid of them. I bring this point up because they seem to have no problem doing this to places that they know are inhabited. This is the problem with the second type of colonialism that I mentioned earlier. See, under such circumstances, if they reached out to the New World's civilizations as equals, as another sovereign power that they respect and interact with, things would have probably gone incredibly differently. But they don't. They treat them as if they're non-people, basically, which is horrible and wrong. Forgive me for reminding you that water is wet. But I bring this point up because I just kept thinking about this as the film uh, kept going on. And it's like, you know, if they just reached out to these people and traded with them like they were another sovereign power, I mean, they have corn, for God's sakes. You know, decent food. Gold. Sorry. Anyways. <clears throat> moving on, moving on, moving on. So, this is when Ratcliffe really starts to descend because he's like, no, no, there must be gold here. There must be gold. This is right about when Pocahontas has confirmed it. No, there's no gold here. This is another level of just how self-deluded he is. And I know self-delusion is not exactly a new trait in a Disney villain, but he insists so hard that there has to be gold here because, after all, he staked everything on this. I mean, if he goes back to England with no gold, well, he might lose his governorship entirely. And he can't deal with that. Actually, point in fact, the film ends with them happily tying him up and sending him back. Uh, yeah, they should probably shoot him and toss him overboard because that's actually not going to go well for them when they get back if they turned on the local regional governor. I'm just saying. Anyways. <clears throat> so there's this peace attempt. Now, this is actually probably one of the better parts of the film. I know that sounds weird. Better constructed parts of the script, I should say like that. Because what happens is <sighs> Smith and Pocahontas are reaching out to each other. And and there's love for some reason. And the two of them, but, but the important part is the two are reaching out to each other and they're being encouraged by, you know, Gaia here in order to go and talk. Just talk, interact, coordinate, trade, correspond, something, anything, in order to try and have some kind of coexistence. So, this peace attempt is pushed forward by only two people, unless you count Gaia, so it's three. It is then interrupted by Nakoma, who is trying to help, and Thomas, who is trying to help. Nakoma sends... I don't actually remember his name. Warrior Dude. And Warrior Dude... 
warrior dude goes and decides to attack him. Not because he's a white demon or any other reason, but only because of the fact that he was kissing Pocahontas. So, for literally pure jealousy's sake, he tries to murder John Smith. Okay. This then leads to Thomas. Now, this is why I say this scene is interestingly constructed. Because if you pay attention, Pocahontas and John Smith, when they worked together, overcame the attacker. It's not until the last second that they really show that, but it does clearly show they were actually winning. They didn't need Thomas to intervene. They didn't need the guns or the firepower. They were managing the peaceful situation, the peaceful solution, I should say, on their own. Then Thomas fires, trying to help. And then everything goes to hell. This is when, of course, war were declared. I have very few notes on this page. I have a note here that literally says, God, I just want to smack these people. And I mentioned that mob mentality is pretty messed up. I haven't talked about the songs in this film yet. That's because, honestly, they're all pretty unmemorable for me, with one exception. And that is Savages. Savages. Barely even human. Uh, savages. Savages. <laughs> they're different from us. That means they can't be trusted. I do have to admit I'm amused by that song. But, uh... I have a note here, and I want to share this out loud, almost word for word. The hardest argument to refute is one where its advocate has been defeated. What I mean by that is, and, and the film makes this clear, John Smith was trying to reach out peacefully. He is then captured by the enemy, the, 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 uh, the Indian tribe. So then, when people are like, well, I don't know, John Smith said they were okay, they, they, all they have to do is say, oh yeah? He tried to reach out for peace, and look what came of him. This type of argument is very hard to refute, because the logic is so self-apparent. And truthfully, the only way to refute is, is with a complex answer. So they form their mobs, and they charge after each other, and what Pocahontas does here is admittedly extremely foolish. But she reaches out. It only works because she is the chief's daughter, and because her mother, the chief's wife, the wind, comes in and helps him too. So he's like, okay, fine, no more violence, I won't be the one to precipitate it. This is another point the film does that's actually kind of neat. It shows that everyone on both sides is actually pretty chill. You know, the the, the settlers and the Indians, they just kind of look at each other and they're all just kind of like... And the other side is just kind of like... The one person who doesn't agree with all of this is Ratcliffe. He's the one person who's like, aha, now we can kill them. And everyone else is like, dude, you're a moron. What are you doing? So Ratcliffe fires... And then John Smith jumps in the way of the bullet to save the Indian. Ah, the chief. Here's an interesting point to think about. See, one of the easiest arguments to support is one where its advocate has sacrificed for it. It is. See, again, you could be like, oh, no, they clearly shot at him. No, he literally jumped in the way of the attack. It is funny how that parallels the earlier point, doesn't it? So Smith is shot. Uh, Ratcliffe absolutely destroys his credibility. And everyone turns on him, of course. And he's defeated. That's it. That's the big climactic conclusion. I have a note here. Trade is the definition of coexistence. I know some people have asked... I'm going to go off on a bit of a tangent because I'm basically done talking about the film. Some people ask me why I'm so into economics. And the basic concept of trade is what originally, originally got me into economics. 
all the way back when I was seven, I believe, is when that first really started getting my interest. Because trade, by definition, requires coexistence. Conquest, pillaging, marauding, that doesn't. Trade requires the other side to exist, and ideally for them to be prospering to some extent or another, just as you are prospering. You then share some of that prosperity with each other, and you both prosper more. Coexistence. And I bring this point up because the final part of the film with them coming with offerings just made me think, you know, this could actually have worked out a lot better, historically speaking, as well as in the film, if this had been approached as if this was France rather than savages. Oh, right. I did have one last point to share. John Smith also highlights the other problem of the second type of colonialism because he's not evil. I know that sounds like a dumb statement, but what I mean by that is there are some people who would push for the second type of colonialism as, you know, ah, ha, ha, screw them, it's mine, and they, they get to suck it. But um, then there are some people who legitimately believe that what they are doing is helping the people that they are colonizing, and by which I mean conquering, of course. There are some people who really believe that they are uplifting them aiding their civilization. Just listen to what he talks about it. No, listen, we've, uh, we'll, we'll share all of this, stuff, all our house-building technology and our medicine. We'll share all of this stuff with you, and we'll teach you how to do it. Now, here's the catch. It's so easy to understand why that's an easy mentality to step into. No, really. We have superior technology to them. So if we uplift them to our level, their lives will be bettered. Now, that's an easy argument to make. The problem is, well, everything, actually, with that. But this brings me back to my trade point. What if, just hear me out, rather than just flat out saying, here's how you should live your life, what about just opening the doors with regards to coordination, cooperation, and interaction? Be like, hey, you want to live your life? That's cool. We'll keep doing this. Oh, you want to know about this? Well, this is a water wheel. Yeah, we'll teach you how to build one, sure, no problem. It'll cost you a little bit. Oh, well, you'll offer us food for that? That's great. Now, again, even that is a slippery slope, and it relies on people on both sides being decent people, and I know that that's, yeah, that's a long bet. But I point it out because it, it's a different attitude, which may or may not be considered more acceptable. In short, the attitude of the former is, oh, you poor thing, let me show you how to really do things. The attitude of the latter is, <clears throat> we cool? Because the whole point is respect. The whole point is looking at the other as if they are an equal, rather than trying to look down at them. Ugh. I don't know what else to say about this. this. Like I said, it's not a very memorable film. I hope you've enjoyed what little I have. I'm sure I will get many people hating me for my comments, because it's impossible to talk about something this charged without stepping on someone's shoes. So if it makes you feel any better, I didn't do it on purpose. Regardless... I will see you guys next time.